You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. What is a monk? The word evokes the image of a man robed and cowled, tonsured in the west, bearded in the east. It recalls the architecture of the monastery, the chanting of the daily office, the monastic rules and vows. Defined thus, monasticism is for the disciplined and committed few. In fact, in many streams of Christianity, those few are not at all. But what if those external things, the robes, rites, and rules, don't make the monk? What if the essence of monasticism is something internal, something akin to the gospel faith in which all Christians stand equal? I'm David Grubbs, and in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be talking with Dr. Greg Peters, Associate Professor of Medieval and Spiritual Theology in the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University, and author of The Monkhood of All Believers, The Monastic Foundation of Christian Spirituality, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Peters. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, I really enjoyed your book, and I'm looking forward to a conversation about it. But before we dive into that, uh, monks are kind of your thing. Uh, What started you on that path? What got you curious into that? In my last semester of undergrad studies, I had a church history survey course. Um, The school I went to had two church history courses that were required. Church history one was the Book of Acts. Church history two actually was everything else. But the professor who taught it, yeah, it's crazy to think about that, but the professor who taught it did uh, something that was a bit surprising. He slowed down in the Middle Ages uh, long enough to introduce us to uh, the Cistercian monk Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, as a good as a good boy from Virginia, I dutifully took notes and then left the classroom thinking, what's a monk? What's a Cistercian monk? And that led me to start being interested in monks. And to be honest with you, 26 years later, I just haven't gotten over that yet. Uh, So it was the introduction to a particular monk, Bernard of Clairvaux, and I read his Unloving God and just really resonated with what he was saying. And then I realized that monks and nuns were such a big part of Christian history that the deeper I got into it, the the longer I just stayed with it until eventually I thought, I'm going to do graduate work in this. I'm going to get a PhD in this area. And then because I teach in this honors program at Biola, I'm able to continue to pursue uh, that work, even though that's not you know, my day in and day out teaching expectations, but it allows me the space to, to keep being interested in monks. So a good monastic friend of mine once said, it's as if I found a golden coin and 26 years later, I just keep wanting to tell everyone about this coin that I found. I like that. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> There's another half of this project though that I find interesting as well, which is that even um, even as you are uh, and has and have been as consistently, enduringly, deeply interested in the history, the tradition, the spirituality, and monasticism, you are not yourself in a cloistered order, correct? That is correct. All right. Um, so. Uh, as we look at this book, um, you, you, you say uh, at particular points that you're working on uh, building a, uh, a theology of monasticism for everyone. 
uh, for all Christians, all Christian traditions, um, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. Uh, but this is published by Baker Academic, and uh, I think most of the the questions that you're answering, objections, things like that, tend to come from the Protestant side. If, if, if I, I hope that sounds fair. So I think it is. Yeah. I, I think that we should perhaps first bring up some of the objections that you're answering. Um, some of which you address tacitly, and some of which are kind of, uh, I feel, sort of lurking in the margins of your book, like illustrations from the more lurid Jack Chick tracks. Um, <laughs> so, what about institutional monasticism, both its abuses and the the design of it, led the Protestant reformers to? Uh, reject it or reject as much of it as they did and as fervently as they did because that seems like something we should we should talk about before proceeding to a more positive resource amount of the tradition yeah absolutely and the and the reformers had very strong things to say uh about it especially the magisterial reformers but uh to a to a man um they each still had a place for it, or at least maybe a different way to say that was in their final kind of theological constructs. There was still room for it, uh, but not so much in the way they had received it. And, and again, when we talk about uh, historic and institutional monasticism, we are talking about an institution. And of course, institutions uh, don't just develop overnight, and they tend to develop particular proclivities and, and um, elements of them, which is what makes them the institution that they are. So the the biggest Protestant you know statement that can be made about monasticism is that it's unbiblical, there's no place for it. Right? So let's just let's just get rid of it all. Um the whole institution. Um but I think that's that's more polemical in the reformers than it is um kind of an actual concrete recommendation. Uh, in other words, they're really saying Let's get rid of monasticism, the institution, as we know it, uh, but Luther, Calvin uh, seem to have room to say, but we could reimagine it, uh, and it could be different. Uh, Luther, in particular, looks back to Bernard of Clairvaux, who was my own inspiration, and, and sees a pretty ideal uh, vision of monasticism there, not idealistic, um, maybe a wee bit in what he thought would be the more simple purity of monasticism, but they're really rejecting the institution as they received it. Um, and so when we think about that, we that's a historical project. Well, what is the institution as they received it? Which I would argue and have argued in The Monk of All Believers is that monasticism itself is a little different than the way it has institutionalized and instantiated itself. Because first of all, the institutions would be different depending on where you are, what order it is. Um, so in the West, you know, what order it is makes a difference. What rule are they following? In the East, uh, every monastery there was never kind of the Benedictine equivalent uh, in the in the East, and so every monastery follows its own foundation document, its own typica. So when we talk about institutions, we're still talking about concrete places, concrete houses, and communities. Uh, and so we could. We can look at those historically and say, yes, I can see what Luther's rejecting in this uh, moment or in this particular institution. But that's a little different 
than saying like there's just no room for monasticism writ large in the Christian church. So what I try to do in the Monkhood of All Believers is carve out that distinction, even if it's an implicit carving out of that distinction between that which is institutional and that which is theological, um, theological content of the monastic life. And that's the side that I think Luther and Calvin and others would still have room for. And mostly when I do talk to Protestants about monasticism, uh, you know, these days the ecumenical movement has made everyone much more charitable, but even the ones that wrestle a bit with the institution uh, seem to be able to get behind a more theological construction of monasticism. Um, and so I think there is a, a space, a real space for the, the book, The Monkhood of All Believers, to, uh, to interact with people in their thinking life, even if it doesn't lay out concrete institutional recommendations. Right, right. So... Those those moves of finding a basis for uh, restoring, reclaiming, resourcing, uh, whatever language you want to use, uh, especially for Protestants, but for all traditions, as you keep reminding us, um, as we reconsider what monasticism could be and how it could be for all Christians, um, I, as as I see it in looking at the book, you've got two main moves that do that. First, how do you answer the question, how can monasticism be for all Christians? But then also, how can monasticism be for specifically Protestants who, who have, uh, it seems, theological objections to the way that often the monastic tradition has spoken of what it's intending to do, or at least uh, at least complications in receiving that tradition. Mm-hmm. So, how can we all? How could all Christians be monks without actually all having to move into a monastery and don don uh, don cowls and habits, which which I'm <laughs> right. down for though, because that's that's yeah. Cool. <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's at the root of it. And it really goes back to, uh, for years, uh, as I worked in this area of monasticism, uh, I took it for granted uh, what a monk was um, and what it meant to be a monk. And again, mostly I think I took it for granted because if you ask most people uh, what's a monk, uh, you'll get an answer. And if they're uh, a little different than the younger version of me, who was a little less certain about what a monk was. Uh, you know, they might even have a caricature, uh, but by and large, the caricature will be more or less accurate. Um, so the, the the whole project for me started just by getting really back to the root of things, which was to say, when we say monk, what do we actually mean? And a lot of that for me was like, you know, even etymologically, where does this you know, word monk come from. And so as I investigated that uh, part of the tradition, uh, that's a textual, you know, that's not an institutional endeavor. It's not an archaeological endeavor. That's a textual uh, tradition. How is the word used and, and how have people talked about the word monk? And as I did that, I came to realize that it, it at its core, at its root, it means single-minded that institutional elements like vowels and things like that come come later, uh, and that single-mindedness is at the core of what it means to be what it means to be a monk. Well, then I just realized that well, single-mindedness just seems like it's what every Christian is called to to do to be. And so, how, how is that you know uniquely monastic? And again, that was 
thinking about the institution itself. And so that's when I realized that, well, if at its core, monasticism is about being single-mindedly focused on God, then that's the calling of all believers. Uh, how it manifests itself, how it concretizes itself, both in the life of individual believers and in the institution of monasticism, is, is, is you know, a development, a later step. Um, it's at least a second, if not third step. But uh, that we're all called to be single-minded, you know, seems to be the biblical admonition. We're warned in the scriptures that a double-minded person is unstable in all his or her ways, and so single-mindedness seems to be uh, prioritized. And so when I when I came to realize that, that's where I really saw, okay, so we're all called uh, to be monks of a particular sort, um, and that's separate from thinking about the institution of monasticism, which is how you know, that's the way of court, and it's right that we think in those terms. But, you know, many Protestants, when they're pushing back against monasticism, you know, the first thing, or anyone for that matter, the first thing you need to ask them is like, what what do you understand monasticism to be? Because that's what they're pushing back on. Uh, and, and so just a related uh, comment to that would also be like, if you say I'm going to go look at Christian history for monks, you, you have to have a sense of what you're looking for. And if you're looking for men and women who are living under vows and wearing habits, then that's what you will find in label as monk. Mm -hmm. I try to let the tradition tell me what to look for. Uh, and I don't want to overstate that as if no one else has tried to do that before. But instead of thinking like, oh, monks are people who have taken vows and wear habits and those kinds of things. Now let me go in the tradition and find that. Instead, I try to just read the tradition and work from that direction and say, yeah, these people are being called monks, and there's no mention of vows, there's no mention of particular habits, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the direction I started, and that insight is what led me to kind of this uh, you know, sense that everyone is a monk. And then I had to work from there to think about the way that monasticism takes particular forms. Excellent. Well, one of the things that you found when you were looking for monks without looking for habits and walls uh, and I've, I found this fascinating because uh, you work through uh, a series of, of historical texts early in the book, is the idea of uh, interior monasticism and a, a, a notion that monastic obedience or monastic vows or monastic focus and calling is something that extends beyond um, this uh, institution of monasticism, which is the first thing that everyone thinks of. Um, would you uh, would you walk uh, perhaps uh, in, introduce our listeners to to some of those texts and and kind of maybe point up some of the some of the ways in which they they provide historical resources for your project? Absolutely. So the first time I encountered this concept was uh, actually reading uh, the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. So during my doctoral work. I decided that I would uh, relax by reading Russian novels, uh, which I love. And so I was reading the Brothers Karamazov, and in there, uh, Father Zosima, who's a monk, uh, tells Alyosha, who starts the novel as a monk and ends it, I, I would say still as a monk, but a monk in the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, Zosima says to Alyosha, uh, you're going to go live as a monk in the world. And again, this is you know many years ago, and I thought to myself, what? I don't get that. What does that mean? Um, and so I started investigating it, discovered that Dostoevsky had been influenced by uh, 
Father uh, Ambrose of the Optina Monastery, and through a series of just following footnotes and everything, came across this reference um, about uh, untonsured monasticism, or what is more commonly called interiorized monasticism. And in short, it's, it is what it says, is that, again, it, uh, it's not the habit that makes the monk, or maybe even the vows that make the monk, or much less that you know just because you live in a monastery doesn't make you a monk, but it's what's on the inside. And so that's where I discovered the concept, but then I thought, well, where do we see this in the tradition? Uh, and it's common in the tradition. It, it, it's, it's common in the sense of it's mentioned in, in passing by Basil, uh, John Chrysostom, for example. I mean, early church fathers were referencing the interior nature of monasticism. Uh, it's particularly uh, popular in, in some Western literature. I mean, we could even think of a John Cashin's the, you know, Purity of Heart. Again, that's an interior conception, not an exterior conception. And in, in, in his conferences, uh, John Cashin's conferences, he plays up on this whole interior and exterior distinction. Um, so there you do get a very clear sense. And then there's the wonderful treatise by Robert de Sorbonne in the 13th century uh, about marriage, where he talks about uh, marriage as a monastic order. Um, so then again, it, it obviously it's not talking about at least monastic vows, monastic clothing, monasteries, it's getting at something else, which is the interior person. Uh, maybe the final text just to talk about, because I think it's one of the most fascinating and, and to be commended to people, is the Abbey of the Holy Ghost. Beautiful late medieval English treatise where you literally construct a monastery, you know, I mean, literally, but figuratively, internally. So you think about the ways that you can order your life to be like a monastery, right? Humility is the abbess because it's the it's the highest virtue that you can achieve, uh, and you know moderation is the the doorkeeper or something like that. And and so these treatises throughout the tradition, you know, they weren't using the phrase interiorized monasticism. That's a more modern phrase, at least from the 18th century. Uh, but they have the concept uh, that's there. So. This thing discovered in Brothers Karamazov turns out is all over the the tradition, both in the East and the West. Um, I just recently ran across. For years, I had been saying, you know, we, you know, the habit doesn't make the monk. You know, we we have that kind of a phrase about lots of things. But uh, just last month, I finally found a 14th century. Ref, you know, reference in a text uh, about the history of the brothers. Uh, um, where that's exactly what the author says in Latin. And so even there, getting at that concept that it's not the habit that makes the monk, it's it's what's on the inside that makes the monk. So that that's what interiorized monasticism is. Uh, and it's quite beautiful because it creates that space, uh, not just for everyone to be a monk of a particular sort, but even you know for those who have taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, for example, that just because they're in a habit living under vows, that the monastic life is bigger than that. It's an interior, not just an exterior uh, thing. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that series of documents showing that this is not um, this is not some kind of laterally uh, 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 imaginative project or uh, a modern uh, a modern adaptation of an earlier spirituality that's playing kind of fast and loose with its nature but rather something that was kind of baked into the pie from the beginning, so to speak. Yes, and it's, and it's across traditions. I think that was a very surprising 
uh, thing again, Basil Chrysostom. I didn't mention it, but it's also in a letter of Simeon the New Theologian in the 11th century. So those are Eastern authors, Greek authors, but then I mentioned the Western authors, uh, both Latin and the vernacular English treatise. So that's what I found particularly amazing is that it wasn't just one particular tradition, that it was it's in the Christian tradition, right? It's It's there in multiple places. That to me was also one of the most exciting elements of it. Yeah. I'd like to get back to uh, the ideas of how per, how particular um, monastic practices like the vows or prayer or things like that um, might apply to to all Christians if we've all if we're all in, in some sense uh, able to participate in this interior monasticism. But first, another uh, I think another move that that. I really appreciate you making um, to build the bridge with Protestants is acknowledging that um, if you are, as a Protestant, committed to justification by grace through faith, a particular uh, conception of what the relationship between um, faith and works, between grace and law would be, then um, a number, a, a lot of the ways in which uh, the historical institutions of monasticism spoke of what they were doing as um, achieving some kind of higher sanctity. Things like that become very suspicious to a Protestant. Um, mm-hmm. And instead, uh, Protestants, Protestants talk about the priesthood of all believers, whereby you know, by our participation in Christ and the gospel, um, we're all even. And yet, um, you say that this doesn't get rid of the possibility of the monk, but actually enables it. How does that work? Mm-hmm. So my initial thinking was uh, always in the back of my mind working on this project was my actual friends who are, you know, who are actual monks, you know, vowed members of monastic communities. And I kept thinking, how am I not totally undermining their very calling yeah. uh, to be monks and nuns? And so thinking about the vows uh, was almost a test case of a sort, you know. So I was like, okay, well, for all monks, I mean, vows are historically, you know, they they develop at some point and they become common, but they, they do become a constituent part of historic monasticism. So I started thinking like, well, what, you know, what vows do do we make as believers, you know, I, I, because I'm ordained, I've made ordination vows. Because I'm married, I've made marital vows. Um, but, you know, not everyone's ordained and not everyone's married. So the obvious place that I ended up was thinking about baptismal vows. Now, I know that some Christian traditions uh, baptize without explicit vow taking, uh, but at the same time, I think there's an implicit nature to vows, even in, you know, in, in baptismal, baptismal vows. So even in a theology that says this is an outward sign of an inward decision, you're still making a vow. You're saying something by your action, which I think, you know, could be construed as a kind of vow to God. And so it dawned on me, like, well, we all make vows. All Christians make vows. Uh, and there's an assumption there about all Christians being baptized. And, and uh, but again, I, you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm, I'm talking in general terms here, but you know, in baptism, we do vow ourselves to God. And as an, as an Anglican in particular, we do make explicit baptismal vows. So in my tradition, you know, it's quite, it's quite obvious, but in others, it might not be as obvious, but I think it's no less true. And by way of those vows, we become, you know, priests uh, in, in the kingdom of God. I mean, we're all priests collectively, right? We, our priesthood is one of, is shared among all members of, of the Christian church. And so there is this sense where all believers lived vowed lives. We're all priests, um, according to uh, Peter, you know, First Peter. And so, um, so in that sense, I think we, uh, I, I alighted upon this, this, these ideas because that's what I think. And, and, and it's true, but, but also I, I actually, the insight, so as I was thinking, I realized that Luther was telling me to go look there that in his critique of monastic vows, um, which he critiqued, again, I don't want to claim that his assessment was completely accurate, but as he understood it, uh, the vows are not made to God, they're, they're made to the Pope. Uh, but there's this, uh, and he pointed to actual examples where, you know, the vows were kind of perfecting baptismal vows. And so he just kind of asked the question, well, what's What's wrong with baptismal vows? Why are they incomplete unless someone vows the monastic life? And and so I realized he was pointing me towards these baptismal vows. And so we all we are lived uh, we all live vowed lives according to our baptism, and we all are kingdom of priests. And so in that sense, there is a it brings an equality um, to, to all of us in the sense of our standing before God. Uh, but at the same time, it it, it ups the ante, if you will, right? There's these obligations because of our baptism as believers. And again, I would say the way I talk about that obligation is single-mindedness, but that's where our commonality comes from as believers in Christ. Um, And so in that sense, there will be moments where certain people will vow over and above the baptismal vows not to uh, complete them, not to uh, go above them, but as complements to them. You know, that's what ordination or marital vows are. Um, so I, I think that was a, a powerful moment of, for me of realizing that, yeah, I mean, we can be committed as Protestants to justification, you know, uh, by faith and by grace, um, but also have a way of thinking about ourselves as, as monastics that doesn't involve some sort of merit or meritorious vowing above and beyond our baptismal vows for what could be you know, the question I was asking myself is, well, what's greater than baptismal vows? And, you know, to be honest, I thought, well, nothing, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, they are a representation of my relationship with God. So therefore, they are the most important vows that I've made. Hmm. I appreciated the, the references to uh, that you cite from uh, Luther pointing back to Francis and actually praising Francis in his uh, in the in the founding of of his order, um, saying that the the only rule that he would have was was the gospel and uh, mm-hmm. Luther really kind of picks up and and runs with that idea in a way that I I, I don't know is entirely the direction that the historical Francis uh, did, but uh, but to say that. Uh, you know, as 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 Christians, the gospel entails particular things of us, and w- and what is there that uh, is, would be rightly asked of a monk that is not rightly asked of all Christians? Mm. And it reminded me of, of stories uh, like the when um, 
Anthony in Athanasius' life of Anthony when when he he enters the church and he hears the gospel reading and for him, for him that means um, embracing the eremitical the eremitical life so that uh, the the thing that uh, in in many of these stories of of kind of great historical monastics great historical uh, solitaries. The thing that the word that they hear that leads them to do what they do is is a word of the gospel, not some yes. other yeah. higher or different word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Luther loved Francis, and he and he thought you know Francis's decision or you know condescension to adopt a rule was kind of enforced upon him, and there is there is a little bit of historical truth to that perhaps. Uh, but uh, you're bringing up. Uh, Anthony is a great example because Anthony, you know, he, like you say, he hears the gospel and then he uh, moves to the desert. And I was just, I was just in the life of Anthony again yesterday by Athanasius. And uh, the reason I was there was because I was working on a project to, to emphasize that, you know, there's never a moment where Athanasius in the life tells us that Anthony made vows uh, or that he, uh, you know, uh, you know, took up a particular kind of habit or anything like that. Uh, but moved by the gospel reading, uh, you know, he followed uh, Christ in that way. And of course, uh, Francis was kind of, uh, you know, the fr- a phrase that that grew up around Franciscan spirituality and practice was, you know, um, you know, the, the, we're nude following the nude Christ. I mean, like it's the gospel simplicity, um, and that's what we're following. Uh, and I do think, in that sense, yeah, for all Christians, I mean, the gospel are our rule of life first and foremost the scriptures are right there are there are monastic rule uh if you will um but again sometimes people are called above that i mean the gospel i don't think tells you you have to be married um but yet many of us do get married and then there are many people who don't get married and not because they become monks and nuns they they either choose marriage or they don't marry um and the gospel commands and expectations are still laid on all of us equally in that regard. Um, so I think the the beauty of the kind of monkhood of all believers, it, it does allow us to, and I'm not against monastic rules, but I think monastic rules tend toward the institutional side of monasticism. Um, but again, the monkhood of all believers doesn't leave us ruleless. It leaves us, you know, first and foremost with the gospel and the scriptures uh, and then all of us, depending on our state of life, will have different things laid upon us, you know, both by the scriptures and by uh, Christian morality. So, so we're not living ruleless lives, um, and we we all, of course, are following the gospel. I mean, I don't I don't think any of my monastic friends would. I mean, they might say, yes, of course, we live according to the rule of Benedict, but they think the rule of Benedict is mostly an extension, an expression of gospel truths, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, Luther probably would have would have had taken issue with some of that, but but Luther aside, uh, you know, I, I think a, a fair assessment of their own understanding of the place of monastic rules is a is a is a healthy one, at least you know here in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I know I've certainly benefited from. Uh, the, the chances that I've had to to to, to study and read and consider in those, um, especially, well, in ways that um, I'd like to I'd like to turn to, so poverty, chastity, obedience. In what ways, uh, in what ways could I 
be poor that don't involve mm-hmm. me selling my house and moving in with you know a bunch of a bunch of other folks just like me um in in a benedictine or Cistercian or yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah no this is this is the rubber meets the road questions and that's that's uh that's where things get a, a, a little more difficult so i'll give the historical example of the franciscans as a way to to kind of get at this um second generation of franciscans uh struggled with this because they became popular franciscans were popular and with popularity in the middle ages came money because if you're now the popular, good, cool, if you will, religious order, then people want to give you money because it, right. you know, because in a, in a system where you're looking to uh, gain merit, supporting, you know, monastic orders is a popular thing to do. So the second generation of Franciscans are now faced with a problem because the whole reason for being in part was to live simple lives of poverty and to beg for their livelihood, but now they actually had a lot of stuff. It divided the order. You know, yeah. it divided the order between the spirituals and the, the the kind of you know the quote unquote normal Franciscans, if you will. Um, so they had to find a compromise, which was well, the Franciscans own nothing. The kind of papacy can hold it all for them, can hold their wealth on their behalf. Well, that you know maybe that's juridical uh, more than it actually is realistic. But I think you know for us as believers, your question's a great one because I think it's what we all wrestle with, and I've been wrestling with it for years just as a as a pastor and trying to give guidance and direction into the lives of people that I've been called to, to, to pastor, you know, uh, you know, no, no one's asked it quite this way, but you know, how many, how many cottages on the lake can I own? You know, how many, how many cars are too many cars, you know? And I think these are the questions that, that we have to be wrestling with as Christians. And um, I think maybe what poverty looks like for uh, each believer is unique to that believer. Um, I mean, I don't think there's a a way that we can necessarily prescribe poverty uh, across the board for all believers, Uh, but I I think it has to look tangible in each of those contexts. And so, um, again, you know, poverty is, uh, it's hard to define because it's, it's, uh, it's relative to uh, cultures, it's relative to place, it's it's relative to who you're surrounded by, uh, you know, and so it, it's hard to legislate uh, a kind of poverty for everyone, as, as the Franciscans found out in the Middle Ages. But I would say, you know, the rule of Benedict picks up on an element of poverty as simplicity. So mm-hmm. I, I have found that maybe poverty seems to, to, to demand some sort of numerical, you know, like put a dollar sign down for me. And if I go right. over, then I'll know I'm not poor. Simplicity is, seems to be more of the spirit of what you do with the material wealth that we have. And we all have material wealth. And I don't mean that just as, you know, the, re, the hedge fund, the retirement fund, but I mean, it's the, it's the things we own as well. What do we do with those things? Do we, do we respect them? Do we retreat, do we treat them uh, in a dignified manner, you know, we, we, we taught our kids, uh, and I'm not trying to virtue signal here. We just taught our kids that you don't break your toys because, you know, they were gifts and we need to be good stewards of these things. And mostly we were saying that to our three and four year olds at the time, because we wanted them one day to get behind of a car and be responsible, not just drivers, but responsible stewards of that possession of a car. And so we thought, well, it, it probably will start with this plastic toy, you know, and and then that principle will transfer up. And so I think, again, like 
maybe in a monastic mindset, simplicity is a good guide as well. And so we can ask ourselves, do I own too much? And I mean, most of us would probably say yes. Uh, you know, uh, for many of us, like, do I give away as much as I probably could? The answer is probably no, because, you know, retirement's an elusive goal. You never know exactly how much you need. And so maybe some of us are putting too much in it and not, you know, divesting ourselves and helping others in ways that would be more God honoring. But I do think like, let's just go back to say, okay, without putting a number on it, just what do we do with what we have? What do we do when someone asks us um, for, you know, for assistance, for help? I just came back from six weeks in, in England because I'm on sabbatical and uh, kind of, I won't mention the cities I was in, but they, they surprised me with the amount uh, of homelessness and begging that I encountered. Um, and I was, you know, confronted again. Uh, we have that here in California, but I was confronted again with like, what is my response to that request uh, on the sidewalk? Uh, which is a simple request. Actually, they're not asking for much. They're asking for anything. Uh, and so, again, I don't know if that's uh, – it's probably unsatisfying not to have concrete answers. That's how I feel most of the time <laughs> to that question. But I do think like, well, monasticism isn't always about just the number. It's not about, you know, like right. if you make over X number of dollars, you're, you're, you're rich and therefore, you know, maybe sinning. Instead, it's like, again, what do we do with these things? How do I hold on to these things? Do I treat them well? Do I try to live simply in spite of the affluence that, that, I'm, that I participate in and live in? Um, so hopefully that can guide people. And then, you know, the good news is the scriptures tell us, you know, that, that to he who knows it's a sin, it is a sin. And so we can, we can try to gauge our lives in ways that, that are led by the spirit and not just like, you know, like, like a monastic rule that tells us exactly when we are failing to be poor. Right. I, I, just, I still do think it's useful as you, as you pointed out that, rules like Benedict, uh, he does give very specific, uh, there are spe very specific rules that he gives about um, things like betting and all the rest of that. But the larger principles mm -hmm. that you point to of you should have enough, all right, and not too much. <laughs> right, um, right. And then also the idea of of the possessions that are around you are not, they're not yours to own, but but the, the principle of use versus owning, um, I, I, I've, I felt that one is, is, is useful. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. going to trash a lawnmower that I borrowed. Right. Because <laughs> I have to get, yeah. you know, if the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or books. Your... I mean, that would, that's the, my, my greatest yeah. sin is like a student that says, can I borrow a book? And I'm looking at them going... I don't want to loan you my book. <laughs> What's it going to come back looking like? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I talk about in the monkhood of all believers using Clement that um, this, these questions have two sides. Uh, you can divest yourself of too much or, or you could have like, you know, so there's the, the question of poverty is a too little and a too much question, yeah. right? Healthy asceticism um, and, and I mean, poverty is a kind of asceticism or wealth is a kind of asceticism, the way we practice it, use it, you know, there, there's, there's, uh, you can eat too little and you can eat too much. It's not, you know, gluttony is not the only direction vice can go. It also moves to, you can eat too little and therefore you would be practicing what he, what Clement calls an unnatural asceticism, uh, versus natural asceticism. So again, his, you know, his guidance is like, you know, when it comes to food is like, well, of course you don't quit eating all food. But how much are you eating, and what's its quality, its kind, 
right? You know, are you are you mostly attracted to the taste versus its, uh, you know, the, the benefits, the health benefits that you gain by eating it? And so I think the monastic tradition has great guidance for us uh, in that because it, it helps us not to be scrupulous and, and live with this false sense of guilt, like, well, I make too much, I own too much, you know, from a global perspective, which is which is true probably for many of us. But it also helps us to realize that the answer is not so much to, like you say, sell all that you have and, you know, start living with in a community of others. I mean, for some will be called to that. That's great. But that's actually not necessarily the answer for all for all persons. So, so the master tradition, I think, does really address this quite pastorally uh, and, and quite well. And, and that's a value in kind of the monastic rules that have come down to us. They can model for us. Uh, ways that others have really thought about these tensions. Yeah, I appreciate it. And you just mentioned it now, the the distinction between a natural asceticism and an unnatural asceticism. I thought that that was useful mm-hmm. too. Uh, especially, yeah, yeah. Especially when we receive, you know, uh, you know, writings of Paul where he will simultaneously talk about, um, you know, kind of bodily disciplines that are not of a that don't avail, but then also. I discipline my body. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Come right, on, man. yeah. Which is you know. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to, you know, I mean, living in California, like exercise is such a popular pastime for many people, but um, I don't understand, you know, I, lately I've been noticing that, like, you know, people, there's the, what's the whole, like, you know, couch to marathon mentality. Like, you know, people go, I need to get in shape. And the next thing you know, they're training for a marathon. And, you know, I always, you know, I'm a runner myself, just not marathons. And I often joke with people that there's a lot of points between doing nothing and running 26.2 miles, (laughs) you know? So like, again, that, I think that's true in, in the spiritual and ascetical life, you know, that there's both, uh, like you say, like, I both discipline my body, but certain disciplines would be to no avail. And, you know, for some people running 26.2 miles, great. For other people, it's two miles a day, and that is completely sufficient and accomplishes what it also is intended for. Um, so I think we have to think like that as monastic Christians, if you will, when it comes to to, to wealth, um, to, you know, the, like poverty, chastity, obedience, you know, other ways that we could think about monastic vows. Right. Now, as, as I, I appreciate the book's discussion of the chastity celibacy question, and I also want to not talk about everything because I want to encourage listeners to read the book. Read the book. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. But there's one. Uh, there's one. The one point that I was interested in hearing a little bit more about is there's uh, a couple places where you say a bit about the the role of uh, what it might look like to translate the vow of obedience to um, the ordinary Christian who is not part of a cloistered order that has a visible human abbot. Mm. Um, what might it look like for me to embrace what a vow of obedience does that is a a gospel truth and is good discipline for a Christian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I know you give the rule of Benedict uh, to you know. I work with eighteen and twenty year twenty two year olds primarily, you know, undergrads. You give the rule of Benedict to them, and it's emphasis on obedience. 
turns them off immediately. Um, it's almost like they they can hardly talk about much of anything else in the rule once they've encountered those, what they view to be extreme forms of obedience. And I mean, they, they are extreme in some ways. Um, but for most of us, obedience, uh, first and foremost, it's like we've already talked about. We're called to be obedient to the gospel and the commands of the gospel and the scriptures. Um, so by default, uh, you know, we already have uh, expectations laid upon us for which we have to exercise obedience uh, uh, to them. Uh, and so it, it is in the warp and woof of the Christian life to, to be obedient. Um, but I think we need to move beyond that. Uh, we, we prioritize our, our freedom uh, to such an extent. Um, you know, free will is such a gift from God. It's what makes us humans um, as apart from, you know, it makes us rational humans instead of uh, irrational animals. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, it's so scary to think about, oh, I've been given free will, you know, and I have to do something with this now. And obedience, <laughs> I think, is, you know, obedience is a monastic virtue that kind of keeps the freedom of the will uh, in check. And so I think um, if we really can get our mind around, so uh, our relationships first, so like, yes, I I'm in a relationship to God, and first and foremost, he's, you know, he's my abbot, if you will. But but even there, you know, like, as I'm exercising my obedience, I need someone to help me see where I'm failing at that or where I'm being, you know, overly scrupulous about that. And I think, you know, God gave us the institution of the church. So I think the church is a place to um, exercise obedience, or it took both to work out our obedience to the gospel, but also to submit ourselves to the leadership of the person that God has called uh, to be the pastor, or pastors, or leaders of that of that congregation. Um, and then even in our just day in and day out relationships, I mean, my wife and I, of course, because I've taken marital vows, we uh, we we are mutually obedient to one another uh, in the ways that that we need to be and have, uh, you know, negotiated or convicted that we need to, uh, need to be. And we expect our children to be obedient in particular ways to us. And so part of this is just honoring the relationships that we, we already have without, you know, having to take a vow per se. Uh, but I think for me, the real heart of that becomes the church, um, the, the institution of the church, uh, I'm a very ecclesially centered human being, you know. I I just think the church is. I would I would, you know, I'd, I'd go to church so much more, you know, if if the opportunity presented itself, which I guess it could, being the pastor of a church. But, um, <laughs> but I just think the church is kind of a neglected place for us to really exercise mutual obedience to one another. So if we want to come back to the baptismal vows and the concept of the priesthood of all believers, well, that means we're all you know, equal in one sense. Um, now, there are those who are the leaders of churches that have a particular calling on their life and do get to lead in those God-honoring and appropriate ways. But why wouldn't I submit myself uh, to fellow believers? Why wouldn't I submit myself uh, to their words of correction or their words of admonition in the same way that I would be more than willing to receive their words of encouragement and affirmation. Um, so I think the church is just a beautiful place for us to work this out. Uh, and if we want to take even like a, a, a ritual or liturgical action, like the passing of the peace or you know, just the simple handshake uh, at a church, what are we saying there? I mean, we, we're, I think what we should be saying is not just, you know, good to see you, glad you're here, but, you know, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's help one another along the journey 
by by being submissive submissive to one another and in kind of you know obedient to one another, if you will. Uh, and then, of course, certainly obedient to those that God has put in position over us. So that that's my thoughts on that. You know, I, I, I spent, you know, six years in the in the military and someone once, you know, said to me, oh, what did the military accomplish, you know, for you? And I said, well, either I was already prone to just kind of be obedient. So I flourished because of that, or it taught me obedience, one or the other. I don't know, <laughs> but most of us need to be taught uh, obedience, and I think the, the the church is such a great place to to work that out. Um, you know, it's often said that um, you know the monastery is the little church within the church. So even in monastic tradition, there's a proper way of thinking about obedience. You know, of course, obedience to the abbot is obedience to God because uh, he stands in the place of Christ. But the monastery is not the end. The church is the end, even in that tradition. So how much more so for us? Uh, monks of this sort, you know, that the church is, is where we'd work out that, that, that vow of obedience or that implicit vow of obedience that we've taken as believers. Hmm. I like that. You just said the, the monastery as the little church inside the church. What use, what use is having a little church inside the church if you already have a church? And why do we mm-hmm. why do we need monks if we're already all monks? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I answer that in a particular way in the book, um, and and my short answer, and I think the, one of the most persuasive answers I can think of is uh, vocation. Uh, we need traditional historic monasteries because men and women are still being called by God to the monastic life. Um, I was called to be married, so I'm very thankful for the institution of marriage. Had I been called to be a, a monk in a, in, of, a tr- of the tr- historic sort, I would like to think there would be somewhere I could go to live out my vocation. So first and foremost, I think that, but but even related to that, but maybe a little different is, you know, oftentimes people talk about the domestic church, right? Meaning the home, mm-hmm. the worship life of the family in the home. Well, you know, no one pushes back on the concept that, well, why would we need a domestic church? We have the church, you know, like, <laughs> like so there is a bit of a sense of like, we, we already have little churches within a church. Why would the monastery be one? That's their family. That, I mean, that there's another domestic church, if you will. That's a um, you know, yeah. When I, when I visit, you know, I, the monastery I visit the most, St. Andrew's Abbey in Valermo, California, uh, when I go there, I, I never lose sight of the fact that I'm the guest. This is, this is not my house. These men in the black habits, this is their house. I'm the guest. So when I, when I get to join them and partake of their liturgy, I'm joining into their domestic liturgy, their domestic church, right? This is, so again, why not have that? Um, so I would argue for monasteries just in general because of people being called to them, but I, but I, I'm more and more becoming convinced of even this image of the family, um, as being, uh, you know, the way of thinking about well, monasteries are families, yeah. uh, and I mean that's actually the way in the tradition that their monastic orders are oftentimes talked about as familias, as families. So it's there in the tradition as well. Um, so that's a little underdeveloped as a as a thing right now for me, but it's it's a place my mind is going. Um, but really thankful. 
that when one of my former students was called to be a monk, that he could go join St. Andrew's Abbey uh, and become Brother John Baptist so that he can work out his vocation. So to me, that's good enough answer. <laughs> good enough reason. Excellent. Well, we are just about at an hour, and I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I have so many more questions, but, you know, I I, I feel like I need to limit the number of spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, uh, oh gosh, there's good things about, um, oh, the Book of Common Prayer as a kind of uh, monastic liturgy in a Protestant setting. There's discussion of celibacy and chastity. Uh a lot more goodies in there, dear listeners. But on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to show hospitality, and we do that by letting our guests have the last word. So, Dr. Peters, uh, as we round out this conversation, what would you like our listeners to be thinking about? I would really like them to be thinking about the way that they are monks, and because of that, they're called a single-mindedness. Uh, we just live in such a age of distraction, and I... I don't mean that just in the modern technological sense, because I realize even Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century would have probably said he lived a distracted life. Uh, but if my thesis is correct, and we are monks, and to be a monk means to be single-minded, then I, I want the listeners to, to, to have that become the grid through which they think about the way that they live out their Christian life. Um, that in spite of all the different callings that we have, in spite of all the different potential distractions we have, that we can remain single-minded uh, in each one of those endeavors, that we can uh, be focused on God and do what we do to His honor and glory um, by, by being monks. Uh, the subtitle of my book uh, uses the, the language of foundation, and I think that's, that's what I want the readers to go away with, that this is a foundation uh, for their lives as as monks. Uh, it's not the end, it's the foundation. And from there, we, we build on that with all the other ways that God has called us to, to be Christians in the world. Excellent. Well, Dr. Peters, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I enjoyed the book. Thank and you. I look forward to this conversation for uh, the the weeks that it's been on my calendar. So thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We've been having a conversation with Dr. Greg Peters, author of The Monkhood of All Believers, The Monastic Foundation of Christian Spirituality, published by Baker Academic. If you'd like to ask any questions or leave comments on this episode, you can do it on our blog, christianhumanist.org, on the show notes for this episode. You can also post them on Facebook. We're there. And we're on Twitter, ch, ch Radio Network is our handle there. And our Gmail is thechristianhumanist.org gmail.com In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs for Christian Humanist Profiles. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>